Well, today of all days is the day that makes very obvious that the Christian faith is making a claim, a radical claim, that is like no other claim anywhere you can find. He is risen, which if we're all together, I know what you'd say in response. He is risen is an extraordinary thing to say. And just very simply to see it and hear it is to see a confrontation, a, a confrontation, a message that's actually pushing into our world and saying there's something bigger, there's something more, there's something greater. It's bringing the most radical decision you need to make. It's bringing the most radical good. The resurrection is a great thing to proclaim. It's a day that we proclaim a, a man that was dead rose from the grave. And, and this is not a man who was sick who got better. This is not a man who was in a coma who finally recovered. This is a man who was dead and buried, raised to life again. A, a man who had been tortured, nailed to a cross, stabbed in the heart, left to die, bleed out, put in a tomb, a cold, dark tomb for days. That man came back to life again. You don't need much more to appreciate that we are saying something incredible. And I do want to encourage you, wherever you are, to appreciate again, and that's largely what I want to draw your attention to today, the incredible nature of the Christian claim that one man rose again from the grave. Now, that's not to say that other pieces of the Christian faith aren't incredible. Good Friday that uh, we just looked at uh, two days ago, three days ago, is itself astonishing. The point that I want to make, though, is it's, it's, that wasn't it obvious that it was astonishing. The resurrection is obviously astonishing. But, but the death of Jesus, well, just looking at it, it, it doesn't seem that amazing. Uh, I mean, at first sight, he died. Well, everybody dies. It's nothing remarkable there. But when you get beneath the surface of that event, you see that it's also remarkable. Um, and that's Good Friday. That was the point of Jez's work with us on Good Friday, uh, fantastic opportunity of digging beneath the surface uh, and, and to do that, to dig beneath the surface, what he did was he, he took us to the, some of the last words of Jesus, not the last words but momentarily before his death, Jesus shouted from the cross in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamech, Sakbachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jez took us into that set of words to help us see that what was going on for Jesus was no ordinary death. It was an extraordinary event. He showed us that those words of Jesus weren't just the cry that you might expect a man that feels under pain, rejection, grief, hostility might cry, why have you forsaken me? They were an exact quote from the very first sentence of a psalm written 1,000 years before, Psalm 22. And that itself is significant when you realise that he, he is quoting this psalm in the context of having uh, had a night of torture, uh, sleeplessness, uh, dragged, nailed to the cross, uh, bleeding and dying, asphyxiated by the weight on his, on his lungs. And in the midst of that, he quotes in full this psalm, the very first words of it. Now, now you might imagine someone just in grief crying out, to have the presence of mind to quote the very first sentence of a psalm? It's quite significant. And when you realise actually that when you go back to that psalm, as Jez took us, you go back to that psalm and you see that that psalm 
speaks about a crucifixion centuries before the experience and speaks about the details of the coming death of Jesus in its detail, you see that that psalm was more than just a psalm, it was a prophecy. It was an indication that God was at work behind history to bring this man on that day, Good Friday, to the cross. And you realise then that what is happening there, though it looks horrific, barbaric, but ordinary, a man dies, is an event of great significance. Jesus did undergo God-forsakenness, but not because he deserved it. He did it because... He took our place. And that's such an important principle, it's such an important truth that uh, I want to kind of begin this morning kind of making clear again what that's about and the best way I can do it is with an illustration. I brought along something quite tangible to kind of help us think about this. Uh, Just imagine for a moment that my hand is me, you, us, and the the lights in the ceiling are God so far above us. Well, between me and the the God who is above me, the the light, the true God, is a barrier. And I found the oldest, darkest, biggest book I could find. It's a book that actually has a record of all my sin. And because of that book, I'm cut off from the light who is God. It's It's a barrier between when he sees me, he sees the record of all the things I should have done that I didn't, all the things I did that I ought not to, all the ways I've lived for myself instead of him and honouring him and loving my neighbour as myself, he sees all of that. A book that's probably much bigger than this one. And it stands between me and God as a, a record of my wrong that brings upon me his just, righteous judgment. Condemnation. But here is Jesus, who we're told in 1 Peter 2 was a man without sin. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that God himself said of Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. He had no record of sin to mar his relationship with God. There was no barrier between him and God. And yet when he died on the cross, he cries out those words, why have you forsaken me, my God? Not because he was puzzled, but because in that experience of death, He took on God-forsakenness. He he took on my sin. He took on all that I have done and ought not to have done and offended God with. He took all of that on himself and so was broken in his relationship in some mysterious fashion. He was forsaken in some extraordinary way. God the Son bore the guilt that I deserve in my place. He suffered the wrath that was mine. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The curse that I deserve was put upon him. He became sin who knew no sin so that I could be free of it. Good Friday on the surface is a very ordinary event. It's an occasion where another man dies a barbaric death horrific but when you dig beneath the surface looking at the words of Jesus that he cries out Psalm 22 look at it you see beneath the surface something of extraordinary significance he died in our place 
He was forsaken for us so that I could be free of that condemnation, so that I could be forgiven, so that there might be no barrier between me and God anymore. He died for us. He didn't merely share our forsakenness. He saved us from it. He didn't just endure pain with us. He did it for us. He didn't merely sympathise with us. He secured our pardon with the judge of the universe. Do you know the death of Jesus um, on the surface is another man dying. But when you dig beneath the surface, when you see his words and see what was going on there, it is an event of astonishing significance. But then, three days later, he's raised from the grave. That's a different event. You don't need someone to explain that that's astonishing. On first hearing, it's astonishing. A dead man, three days dead, really dead, buried dead, is alive again. And not just alive like he was before, but alive that he would never die again. Resurrection is not just the same as resuscitation. And that is a straight-out miracle. And note this with me, we're not talking about a metaphor. We're not talking about a metaphor of victory in the context of despair. I, um, I noticed Alan Jones this week was preaching Easter. And uh, I don't follow Alan Jones, I need to actually conf- make sure you know that. But uh, someone sent it to me and Alan Jones gave a message on Easter and it was a proclamation, as far as I could see, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I found myself quite amazed and it caught my eye until I read this. He said... It's a symbolic triumph of good over evil. And I thought, he doesn't believe Easter. He's thought of as just a metaphor, a story. A story of someone who died in pain, but was able to conquer in some mysterious way. It wasn't true, it was just just an illustration, a legend that gives us a hope that we can perhaps one day conquer as well. Now, of course, a person's free to believe what they want to believe. It's a great thing about our country. You are free to believe what you want to believe. But that's not what the first Christians believed. It's not what they proclaimed. They spent their lives insisting the resurrection actually happened. That it was literal. That it was real. The account that we read earlier today... um, has just such wonderful detail. It's only one of four accounts, or actually one of a number of more accounts when you look at the letters of the New Testament, where you get very early records of this event. But there's something about these accounts that's very plain and very straightforward. These authors are simply seeking to report what they saw. So so Matthew simply reports that the, the tomb being empty, those who went to see the earthquake that occurred Um, and and wonderfully you get this beautiful picture in verse 8 of Matthew 28, the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy. Now there's not a legend, there is first-hand eyewitness reporting of people who were puzzled, who were 
afraid of what's going on, the magnitude, the significance of it, but filled with joy beneath it all. The account we read is this kind of eyewitness detail, the, the, the way that the accounts all mesh together, the way that these first followers of Jesus talked about the resurrection even though they suffered greatly for it, all but one of them was, was killed because of their proclamation. And yet throughout all of their lives, every single one of them held the line that they saw Jesus alive again. This was not a myth. The evidence for it is overwhelming. You know, Christianity began on the basis of a, of a conviction that Jesus actually rose from the grave. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. It literally happened. And he rose never to die again. And straight up, that's extraordinary. His death is astonishing when you understand beneath it. The resurrection is just astonishing. It tells you at the very least that this life is not the only life we have. Without a great deal more reflection, it tells you there's more to come. But, with some thought, it does actually say much more than that. And I want us to think about this some more together this morning by looking again at Psalm 22. The psalm that we looked at on Good Friday, the psalm that we read from again this morning. And remember, it's absolutely intentional that Jesus quotes from it. In the midst of all his pain and all the suffering that he'd gone through, he has the presence of mind still to quote word for word the very first sentence of that psalm. A psalm that spells the details of his death, we looked at that on Friday, in great detail, a thousand years before it ever happened. And he quotes that psalm not just to tell you that he is suffering what the psalmist suffer in a deeper, more significant way in our place. Not just to tell you that, but to say, this is my psalm. If you want to understand what's happening here on the cross, read my psalm. Read Psalm 22. And if you've got your Bibles, flip back to Psalm 22. It is a psalm that begins with uh, a whole series of expressions about anguish and grief and pain. Where is God? How come he doesn't answer? Others are answered, but I'm, how come this is not happening for me? It's great pain and grief and anguish. But then the whole thing changes at verse 22. It should come up on the screen for us. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. <laughs> Suddenly a psalm that's full of grief and anguish and forsakenness and despair, within one verse, halfway through, transitions into a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. Something's happened. Something's happened between verse 21 and 22. Something's happened that brings about a massive change, that brings about a kind of change that has scale to it. Let me just show you a couple of other verses. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. 
What has happened to cause that? Not just praise amongst the people of this psalmist, among the nation of Jacob and Israel, but actually a praise, verse 27, that will go to the ends of the earth, where people will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him as a consequence of something that's happened. You come down to verse 30 and you see a similar idea. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. There is something that's happened that will not just cause praise amongst the immediate group of people, the Israelites, but all the nations of the earth and for all generations. They, verse 31, will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done this. What a psalm. This is the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. This is my psalm, he says. With great care in every single detail, he reads that, those first words. Now here's the thing. David was a great king. The one who wrote this psalm. But it's hard to discern anything in his life that would have made the planet burst forth with praise to God. Now this is the deal, you don't need to search for that event in David's life because it never really was about David. It's Jesus' psalm. He grabs the first sentence and quotes it from the cross moments before he dies. It's not the last words he says, he finishes with, it is finished. It's, he hands his soul over to his father. But just before he dies, he quotes these words and he is saying to all who would listen, go there, look to that psalm and it will tell you what's happening. And here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, generations later, celebrating the death of a man who was God-forsaken. And it's not just us, it's people on every continent on the planet, in every country across the globe, gathering today, however they're able. People not yet born when Jesus died. People many generations from the death of Jesus. Now that doesn't happen just because Jesus gave us a great metaphor to know how to live in despair. What could cause such a celebration, such at the ends of the earth will remember the Lord and bow down before him, such that the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord, such that posterity will serve God and future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his righteousness. What could have happened to make that celebration happen? Think about this with me. And forgive the illustration that I'm about to give because it's so obvious, it's almost embarrassing to use it, but I'm going to use it anyway. Think about our current time in the world at present. Imagine, imagine our current context. What would be the one thing that would cause the world to celebrate right at the moment? Today, in our current setting. 
Now, I miss you not being here for so many reasons. One of them is because I know what would happen as soon as I asked that question. I'd be bombarded with answers, and they'd be good answers. But let me offer in your lounge room, wherever you are, um, what would make the world step up and celebrate today? What needs to happen for that to occur? Discovery of a cure. The complete eradication of this virus. Imagine a scientist who brings out the news. Imagine someone from Dubbo, which I'm sure is where it's going to come from. Someone in Dubbo, in a research scientist laboratory there, comes up with the cure and Australians win the day again. Imagine that happens. The world would celebrate. We're in the midst of a worldwide struggle which impacts everything. It's impacted our freedoms, our health, our economy, our relationships, our lives. People are dying because of this virus. And that problem hangs over everything. It dominates everything, rightly. Have you noticed in recent times how little there's been report of other disasters happening in the world? Have you noticed... um, in fact, the, the Great Barrier Reef has suffered one of the greatest, worst bleaching experiences it's had and it's made just a column somewhere in the corner of a page because this virus dominates the news. We have not heard much about the gender wars. We have not heard much about the issues of racism and sexism, as important as these things may well be. We have not heard much about climate change, as important as it may be. These things have fallen off the front page because in the current context, the big problem is massive. But let me offer this thought. If we continue with this virus the way it is for not just months but years, let me suggest what will happen. We'll get used to it. It'll fade into the background. It'll become the new normal. We'll learn to live with it. We'll try and avoid thinking about it because we'll want to get on with our lives. And that's exactly what's happened with a deeper and more serious problem in our world. This pandemic will likely only last a short time. But every day amongst us, there's evidence of a more terrible problem that we are living with that we have always been living with, the slow and inevitable human decay that ends with death. Now, I don't want to be depressing, but actually I'm going to be depressing. Um, You know, every child that's born is born with great hopes, great expectations about what their life will be, dreams and so on. But here's the deal. When they hit 20, they will have peaked. 22... From then on, the rot will start until you end up older and stiffer and weaker and just getting out of bed becomes difficult and you can't do the things you used to do and you become slowly decayed and futile and broken and then you, you die. You know, we'll beat this virus, but we will all still die. Now, we know this is true. But we have lived so long with this problem amongst us, we're trying to ignore it so that we can just get on with life and not get depressed about the great problem that's there. A friend of mine, who himself has died, used to say how unpopular it was to talk about death. 
and he suggested that you could see how unpopular it was by going to your next party, dinner with friends, one day when it can happen again. And when the conversation lulls and there's a bit of a quiet, he said, just try this little experiment. Speak to the person who's invited you to dinner and say to them, loud enough for everyone else to hear, have you thought about your death recently? And just see how that goes for a conversation starter around the place. What he was offering was that though it's a problem that faces us all, we don't want to face it. Every single one of us will die. We've learned to live with it by ignoring it, pretending it's not there or imagining it's a natural part of life. But it never was natural. It never is. It's wrong. It was never meant to be there. There are perhaps times of such pain in a person's life and dysfunction that we might allow death when it comes as a mercy for them. But the loss for the rest of us is still there. And we sense that that loss ought not be there. It's wrong. And it's the kind of loss that happens in death that bleeds into every area of life lived before that death. It actually, it actually takes from us any foundation for meaning, purpose, human value, any values, right, wrong, good, evil, are all stripped away from humankind if death is the end. It's wrong. And we brought it into the world. It was our rebellion against God, the giver of life, that brought it. We released the virus, if you like, that brings death to the world. And we are now living in a world captive to it. <laughs> but here's the thing. What could cause the kind of celebrations spoken about in Psalm 22? What could happen that means a start, psalm that starts in judgment and despair can end not just in praise, but praise that the whole earth joins in, that people in every nation join in with, that leads people not yet born to bow the knee to God, to celebrate him and rejoice in him, people from every nation throughout history. What could happen to make that possible? It's the event where God came into our world and did away with death. Destroyed death itself. That is the radical message of Easter. It's not a metaphor for hope. It is hope, literal hope, of the defeat of death itself and hope for a life beyond that. Forgive the constant reference to the virus, but if someone came and took the virus from us, took away every consequence of the virus from us by absorbing it into themselves and suffering every death that it otherwise would have caused in themselves, if someone did that and so freed us and healed us, what would the world's response be? It would be to celebrate and praise and give thanks for that sacrifice. God came. God himself came amongst us. And he did it. In the most costly way. To achieve this miracle, 
of new life and the end of death. He absorbed death into himself. He became God forsaken that we might be pardoned, that we might be freed from death. He took on himself the judgment that we deserve to free us from the death that has held us in slavery and fear all our lives. And then, three days later, he rose again from the grave, demonstrating not just that there is a life to come, but that his death has made that life to come possible. That, that his standing in our place as a substitute, being forsaken for us so that we don't need to be forsaken, has made it so that we can be certain and sure that death has been undone. Death has been defeated. And so demonstrating by his resurrection, not just that he has defeated death, but he is the key to the defeat of death. He is the one who can distribute that gracious gift to any who would come to him. Do you know, there's a sense through the Bible of such a need to shake us free from the, the danger of missing the power of this, that each gospel makes this point loud and clear, the tomb is empty. Sin has been paid for. Death has been defeated. Our greatest enemy is destroyed by the greatness and power of God himself. He came for us. He died for us. He destroyed death for us. Do you know, over every grave of a person who knows and puts their trust in Jesus, you hammer a cross into the ground, an empty cross, because Jesus has defeated death. He has risen. And it proclaims that this person's death has been defeated as well by the power of God on the cross. We will not stay dead, but we will rise to meet him and all others who have been raised in Jesus in a new creation. That's what the resurrection says. You know, next to every hospital bed, where someone is dying, someone who knows the Lord Jesus and has put their confidence in him, next to every bed like that can be someone who can say with confidence to that dying person, you will not die. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Your life will not end. Everything you've done in life is full of meaning and value and purpose and will last eternally. This is the richest sense of this message of Easter, that there is a God of love who has come for us, the infinite God who has tasted death for us. It's mind-boggling, but the evidence is compelling. It was such a moment that when that man died, the sun stopped shining. The earth shook. The graves broke open. He dealt with our greatest need. We don't just need inspiring not to give up in the midst of difficult circumstances. We need rescue. We need a cure to death. More, we need rescue from judgment. And God in his love and mercy has done it. Now, what do we do with this? Friends, something needs to be done. This is not about 
whether you feel there's a need in your life or an emptiness in your life, because there is a need. Every one of us age and die. We are fallen. We one day all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Something needs to be done, whether you feel it or not. And something needs to be done because of what God has done. He did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. He paid an immense cost to buy us forgiveness and freedom from death. What will you do with that gift? We aren't now just talking about ideas and philosophies and arguments. We're talking about a God of love who has offered something at great cost to himself. A gift that will free you forever. What will you do with that gift? What should you do? Turn back. Accept his gift and bow the knee to him. Will it cost you? No and yes. No, it's a free gift. It's for anyone who cries out to God, save me. You cannot earn forgiveness with this God. You cannot ever be worthy of this gift from God. You can't ever do enough to make yourself morally good enough for this God. In fact, this gift is for the the person who's in exactly the opposite place. This gift is for the person who is unworthy. That's why this church is like it is. It's full of people who are unworthy. Let me assure you of that. Led by someone who is unworthy. It's a free gift. It doesn't, it cannot, it doesn't cost you because God needs to give it to you. Receive it. Entrust yourself to him. Give thanks to him for saving you. But will it cost you? Yes. It'll cost you your independence. It will require you, in the words of Psalm 22, to bow the knee, to bow before him. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord All the families of the nations will bow down before you for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It won't cost you because it's free but it will cost you your independence because the work of Jesus was to save you from death that you might live with him as your Lord. But in the end, that's not a cost. It's a blessing to be ruled by such a God, a God of such love, a God who comes himself to pay a price we ought to have paid but can't and to pay it with his own life. To bow the knee to that God is a great gift. Can I urge you this Easter to respond to him like that? Easter, the resurrection The death and resurrection of Jesus is the most radical thing to be saying in our world. 
and it requires the most radical decision but gives you the most astonishing hope. I'm going to pray. Our great God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you did not spare your only son, but gave him up for us all. We thank you that you did not leave him in the grave, but you raised him to life again, conquering death and freeing all of us who have lived our lives in captivity to death and fear of one who holds the power of death. Thank you that you have freed us. Please help us come to you putting our trust in you, not thinking we can earn it, not thinking it's about our merits, but aware that it's a gift from a God who is generous. Help us come to you, though, knowing it will mean the end of our independence. But what a blessing to be ruled by such a God. Amen.